I'm Gregory Berg. The following morning show interview was recorded and initially broadcast back in 2016. The occasion was a series of performances by the Milwaukee Florentine of Jake Hagee's poignant chamber opera, Three Decembers. I thought it would be interesting to bring back this interview because earlier this fall, the Metropolitan Opera, for the first time in its history, presented Jake Hegge's most acclaimed and most often performed opera, Dead Man Walking, based on the best-selling memoir by Sister Helen Prijan. Incidentally, this interview means a lot to me on a personal level. It so happens that the day that I was to record this interview with Mr. Heggie, I ended up going into the hospital. And I am so grateful to Jake Heggie for being willing to reschedule our interview. And this conversation is among my all-time favorites. I hope you enjoy it as well. This weekend, uh, the Milwaukee Florentine is presenting a second weekend worth of performances of a most intriguing and poignant uh, chamber opera called Three Decembers, and uh, this is a work by a composer who is uh, as highly regarded as any contemporary opera composer. His name is Jake Heggie, a uh, highly regarded and prolific composer of uh, more than 250 uh art songs and various vocal works as well, and a number of different works for the stage as well. His first opera, uh, an operatic treatment of the familiar story Dead Men Walking, uh, has received uh, productions around the country and indeed around the world as well. He also has an operatic treatment of... uh, the story of Moby Dick that has been very, very well received is currently at work on an operatic treatment of It's a Wonderful Life, uh, has also crafted some uh, very, very powerful, poignant works uh, for the group Music for Remembrance, uh, various works that spring out of the experience of the Holocaust. Uh, and again, this chamber opera called Three Decembers uh, is uh, Uh, being done at the Milwaukee Florentine in a very intimate space. So uh, this is not Aida. This is opera on a much more sort of personal, intimate level. And uh, it uh, received a very, very positive review from the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel last weekend. And uh, there are more opportunities to experience this work. And I'm very, very thrilled to have the opportunity to speak with the composer, Jake Heggie, about this and uh, other works which he has uh, created uh, through the course of his uh, very, very successful career. Jake Heggie, we welcome you to The Morning Show. Thank you. Great to be with you, Greg. I'm very, very happy to be uh, uh, talking with you today. I experienced you as an audience member once before uh, at the convention in Boston, I believe it was, for NATS, the National Association of Teachers of Singing, and uh, you gave a a presentation that was very, very well received, and uh, uh, I was so impressed with with all that you had to say, as as I've long been impressed with your music, and so uh, on a very personal level, I'm, I'm quite excited about this. Um, you began your work as a composer, as a young person, not long after you lost your father. And I wonder if we could just, although that's a very personal place to begin, I wonder if you could just say a word about how much those two events had to do with one another. That is the loss of your father when you were maybe, I don't know, 11 or 12. And, uh, I understand shortly thereafter beginning work as a, as a composer. Do you think one sprang out of the other? Oh, absolutely. Um, well, I'm innately a musician, uh, and I started piano lessons when I was about six or seven years old. The whole 
family did. There were uh, four kids, and we were living in Ohio, just outside of Columbus, in a suburb called Bexley. And uh, my my parents had kept it very well hidden, but my father suffered terribly from depression. And when I was 10 years old, just before my 11th birthday, he uh, took his own life. And it was sort of like a bomb going off in the family. Uh, You know, you can't even uh, imagine such a thing when you're that age. And I found a very safe and positive and reinforcing place in music where I felt affirmed, connected, authentic, um, joyful, successful, all of those things, and empowered. And just out of the blue, when I was 11, I just decided I was going to try to write music as well. And I think I had been, I, I had a paper route, and so I was, I would take my my paper route money and I would go to the local music store to buy scores, because I loved to just read through music at that age. So I was buying Beethoven sonatas and Chopin works and just sight reading them as best I could. And there was a book of blank manuscript paper, and that's the first time I realized that maybe I could write too. And so I took, I bought that, and I took it home, and I started writing. Hmm. Now, put the pencil down yet. <laughs> hmm. Would those, uh, would those first songs that you composed, if we looked at them at face value, would we, would we immediately assume, ah, yes, this, this, this obviously was in response <laughs> to this terrible, bewildering loss uh, you had experienced, or, or not, not so much. I don't know. Um, you know, they're actually long gone. I don't. I don't know where they are anymore. Um, but I started by doing pieces that told a story, um, and I don't remember exactly what the very first ones were. Uh, they looked very impressive on the page. There were lots of notes there, but I'm not sure how meaningful <laughs> they were. Um, uh, but I remember one of the first pieces that I wrote was a piano sonata that. Um, had several movements, and it was called The Story of War, and it was about having to go, um, and then the, the second movement was called Oh God, I Might Die, and then there was a reunion at the home, coming home again, um, and it was, uh, I'm sure everything, you know, after my father's death, everything was clouded by that. Hmm. There was great uncertainty in my life. I didn't feel sure about anything except music, hmm. and uh, so... I don't know if if we looked at those early ones, what they would tell us, but I do still have songs from when I was uh, 15 or 16 that I wrote, and I was moving much more towards writing Broadway ballads type things. Uh, I didn't really know about opera at that time. Um, we didn't really have a lot of opera in the community, but movie musicals were everywhere, of course, and there were musicals on TV, and it was an age of great variety shows on television, uh, and I couldn't get enough of, of all of those, and every week there would be either Ella Fitzgerald or Beverly Sills or, you know, and uh, uh, there was great variety of music in the air, but I knew more about uh, musical theater than I did about opera, so I was writing a lot of ballads, and, and Barbara Streisand was very big, and I loved her voice when I was a kid, so uh, I was writing a lot of songs with her in mind, and it wasn't until my uh, later teens and my 20s when I was exposed to the operatic voice and I started moving in a different direction. I read someplace that one of your first important uh, teachers of composition was a very fine song composer by the name of Ernst Bacon. And yeah. uh, I wonder, what did that feel like? I don't know if he was the very first person you actually studied uh, composition with or not, but I wonder what it felt like to actually begin studying something that you began doing just kind of 
on your own. I think sometimes young people who are exploring something like that, uh, it, it can be sort of a, a disconcerting experience to suddenly have to sort of sit down and learn about something that, in a sense, you already <laughs> thought you knew how to do. Well, but I think it's great that it started because it was, in, it was natural to me to want to do that. And what he could give me was technique and discipline. And he also was able to broaden my palate by introducing me to, for example, I only set my own texts at that point. And he told me I could set other people's texts. And he showed me, you know, great poetry from the past and how I didn't know about the art song literature at that point. Um, I was just writing songs because I loved the voice and I loved words and I loved the combination. And um, it came very naturally to me to want to, to, to put those worlds together. And he was a great song composer, Ernst Bacon was. And he, he was in his 80s when I was studying with him. I was 16. We had just moved to California from Ohio. And he was my first composition teacher. And he really opened up, um, he opened up the world of song and singing for me. And he made the music even more personal. Uh, one of the things, that, one of the first exercises he gave me, which I thought was really brilliant, was we learned, uh, he, he would teach me how to write canons and fugues. And what he would do is he'd have me base the musical theme of the canon or fugue on the name of someone that I love. So that right from the beginning, that music is connected to something deeply meaningful to me. And so you, 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 it forced me to write in a different way because I was writing about someone that I care about. So the music had a different level of meaning than I had ever assigned it. Hmm. Uh, and that, that I thought was a great exercise. Obviously, I did it, but I'm still thinking about it, you know, 40 years later. Wow. So um, he was... He was very, very important to me in that regard. And when I, I studied with him when I was 16 and 17, and only later did I find out that my friend, the great composer, Carlisle Floyd, also studied with Ernst Bacon when he was 16 and 17. Wow. <laughs> but there's, there was 35 years between us. Wow. And by the way, how did such a thing happen? That um, is, how did you manage from, to connect with Mr. Bacon? Um. Yeah, and while I was studying with it, it was funny. My last name is Heggie. His last name is Bacon, so it was Bacon and Heggie. Uh, We moved from Columbus, Ohio to California, and my mother got me connected with this group of um, people, mostly women, um, who were, uh, they had a composition group. And they were all in their mostly 40s, 50s, and 60s, and they would meet once a month share compositions. And so I went, and I was by far the youngest at, at 16 years old, but they went once every other month uh, or so to have a group lesson with Mr. Bacon and to show him their work. And one day after one of those group lessons, I just took him aside and I said, would it be okay if I took regular lessons with you? I think I could learn a lot from you and I, I would really love to study with you. And he said, absolutely. And we did this at his home. And that was one of the happiest days of my life when he said he wanted me to study with him. And so I went every week for over a year uh, to his house in Orinda, California. (laughs) And he was extremely generous and good to me and really opened up the world of music to me in a way that it had never been opened up before. Wow. You went on eventually to uh, connect with someone else who was a very important person in your life on several different levels, the, the widow of 
one of America's most important 20th century composers, Roy Harris, his widow, uh, Joanna Harris, who was very important to you and with whom you also extensively performed, I think, as a duo pianist. At, at, yes. what, at what point did, did you sort of get, in a sense, wrested away from composition as being your focus, or was, was piano always really important to you as well? Uh, piano was primary for me. I was uh, first and foremost a pianist. And I had started, like I said, taking piano lessons when I was about six or seven years old, and I was just hooked on it from the time that we, of that from the first very the very first lesson. Our teacher got us uh, taught us how to play a song right away. That we played Hot Cross Buns and go on the three black keys, and I went to everyone every neighbor's house and played Hot Cross Buns until they were screaming at me. Um, and I was just hooked on playing the piano from that moment on, and I was. I was good at it. I, I didn't. I wasn't. Uh, I didn't have a great technique, but I had a very good natural technique, and I had great curiosity. So I was constantly reading music, um, and that's really what I thought I was going to do: was perform and uh, be a concert pianist. And composition was sort of on the side. I never, ever, ever thought there would be a way to make a living or a life as a composer. Not when I looked back on the great scores of. Brahms and Bach and Beethoven and Schubert and Wolf and uh, Mahler and you know I looked at all those scores and thought there's no way I have anything to say you know that could even come near with what the level of that work so I'm going to focus on performing the work and I'll write music sort of on the side because I had great passion for it so when I went to UCLA and got to study with Joanna Harris I was as a it was as a piano major um, and it wasn't until about halfway through my college years with her that I realized um, writing music was becoming more important to me than, than performing it. Performing it has always been important to me, and still is. I still do it. But uh, writing it sort of starts to take over, and I think it's because I was, interested, I was introduced to a deeper world and broader world of chamber music, vocal music. I got to know classical singers. I finally went to the opera and to... Uh, symphony concerts and recitals in a way that I hadn't in my teens. And uh, I think that deepening and broadening of musical experience was key uh, towards uh, leading me more to becoming uh, a composer. And so I, I went much more in that direction. So after I finished my undergrad degree at piano, uh, I, when I went back to grad school, it was as a composer. Hmm. And my understanding, too, is at some point uh, you contracted a kind of a disorder in one of your hands, which also, yes. in a sense, spelled the end of your, your active days as a, uh, as a uh, professional pianist. It, it sounds like uh, you might have made that choice anyway on your own, but in some ways uh, your own body necessitated that, uh, that decisive uh, step in that other direction. I had a, what's called a focal dystonia, where my hand... Uh, started to curl up my right hand would start to curl up when I'd play and so I, you can't play the piano like that and I was starting to make terrible mistakes during concerts and I knew I just had to stop and uh, luckily I found uh, there was a neurologist at UCLA when I was going through this he was t giving lectures on injured musicians and I went and talked to him and he said, oh, you have, you're in early stages of a vocal dystonia, and we'd love to do some studies on you and maybe get you some help. And so he connected me with a teacher who uh, made me stop everything that I'd done and said, you can't play any of the music you've played up till now, ever again. 
because your body will go right back into that position. But we can retrain your hand and you can play new stuff or, you know, luckily the, the literature is so broad, there's plenty that I could still learn and do. Um, and what it meant was I had to stop performing and I stopped writing too because I kind of got depressed about that. This was my late 20s. And But what I found that I could do to sustain myself is I learned how to produce concerts and how to write about music. And I, I, I was very good at writing about music. And so I got a job in the PR marketing department at UCLA Center for the Arts. And then I moved up to San Francisco shortly after that. And a job that had been not been open in, at San Francisco Opera um, in their PR marketing department, the writer for the company, it suddenly opened. Uh, and out of 300 applicants, they picked me. So I was suddenly the writer for the San Francisco Opera. And... This was just about the time I was getting my hand back to be able to perform, and I suddenly had this drive to compose again, like I hadn't felt since I was a kid. And I was literally working with the greatest singers in the world uh, as they came to you know perform there. So Renee Fleming and Placido Domingo and Frederica von Stada and uh, Bryn Terrible and Sylvie McNair, these great singers coming through the opera house. And I'd spend time with them to do stories about them for our magazines or for the press. And I'd work with their managers and press people. And inevitably, during a conversation, they'd say, so tell me about you. What do you do? And I'd say, well, in another life, I was a composer. And inevitably, they asked to see something. And I would show them an old song. And it was Frederica von Stada who had really inspired me to want to write something new. And so I set some folk song uh, I made some folk song arrangements for her and she loved them and asked me to play concerts with her and to write more music and uh, that caught the attention of the general director at the time at the company and out of the blue he asked me if I'd ever thought of writing an opera and I said no <laughs> and uh, he he thought I might be a theater composer and so he sent me to New York to meet Terrence McNally the great American playwright to see if we could come up with an idea for the main stage season at the San Francisco Opera. And that turned into the opera Dead Man Walking, my first opera, which has now been done all over the world. It was sort of a really remarkable trajectory. I felt like Cinder, not Cinderella, maybe Cinderfella. <laughs> <laughs> at the San Francisco Opera, you know, suddenly all this transformation was happening. It was just the most amazing journey. Well, and, and all these people who suddenly believed in me. Right. Where I didn't, and I didn't believe in myself. And what, what an extraordinary uh, opportunity to be given to, to uh, really a, a, a largely untried uh, composer. Uh, right. I mean, that's just a, an ex- extraordinary leap of faith on the part of General Director Lofty Mansouri to uh, to give yeah. that to you. Uh, I understand from something that you've written about that collaboration with Terrence McNally that that there was probably a really scary moment when it looked like that was not going to occur. That is, when you first met with him, um, <laughs> he was not particularly interested in what the San Francisco Opera's initial ideas were. And you probably <laughs> felt like the, the greatest opportunity you'd ever been handed was, was going to come come to nothing. Uh, tell, us, uh, tell our listeners about that exciting moment when he, in a sense, called you back sometime later. And, uh, yeah, and, well, when I went... I went to meet him. It was 1996, and so I'd been working at the opera for two years and already had been given this amazing opportunity. And I was I went to New York because Renee Fleming was singing one of my songs on her recital at 
Alice Coley Hall in Lincoln Center, and uh, I had the opportunity to meet with Terrence. And at that point, we, you know, Lotfi had asked for the year 2000, uh, something celebratory and light and bubbly, you know, like a comedy. And he had sent me with this idea of this French farce based on a movie called Les Belles de Nuit, The Beauties of the Night, an old French film. And Terrence McNally could not have been less interested <laughs> in something like this. And um, I don't think he was terribly impressed <laughs> with, uh, with me or with uh, the idea. And so when I went away, I was pretty sure that was not going to work, even though we liked each other. We, we hit it off right away. Um, and he, you know, I, I was pretty sure it was just going to fall apart. So there I was sitting at my desk job thinking, yeah, like you said, that this great opportunity was going to come to naught. And while we were talking about a couple of other writers, um, Lotfi was still interested in maybe pursuing this. All of a sudden, out of the blue, I get this phone call because I'd been sending recordings of recent works and performances to Terrence McNally all along. And he called me very excited in January of 1997 and said, I want to talk to you. I want to do this opera. I think we need to do it. I just want to find the right story, but I think we, we need to work together. And I called him back and I said, what happened that you suddenly changed your mind? He says, well, I got this package of your music. And the very next day, he said, I was at a concert at Carnegie Hall and Renee was singing, Renee Fleming was singing American Composers. And I went backstage to congratulate her and she pulled him aside and said, you need to write an opera and there's only one composer you should be thinking of working with and that's Jake Heggie over in San Francisco. Wow. Now, I had not paid, I had not paid Renee. <laughs> <laughs> Nor planted that, but uh, she, she really, he got very excited about American composers and song and the potential and the power of a great singer inhabiting those words and that music. And he called me, and that's when we started thinking. And that very summer, he came and visited me, and that's when he came up with the idea of, uh, of Dead Man Walking. Hmm. For those of you just joining us, I'm speaking with Jake Heggie, who is one of America's most highly regarded uh, art song composers and opera composers as well. And uh, his chamber opera called Three Decembers is being performed right now at the Milwaukee Florentine. Right now we're talking about the first of his many operas, uh, an operatic treatment of the familiar story, Dead Men Walking, which at the time it was made into an opera was already uh, an outstanding an outstanding film. Um, you said in, in an interview at some point, big stories really resonate with me uh, when it comes to to creating operas. Uh, For something like uh, Dead Men Walking or Moby Dick, I think we have kind of a sense of the ways in which those are big stories that cry out to be made into operas. But some of the other works that you've created for the stage maybe are so-called big stories, maybe in in more sort of subtle ways or or intriguing Uh ways. What do you think are the kinds of stories that belong on the opera stage? Um, Well, for me, I, I think stories that resonate most strongly are where the emotions or the emotional world of the piece is so rich and so big that it makes sense for people to sing rather than speak. And that there is some big, huge emotional journey uh, at the crux, at the center of, of, the, of the drama. So those stories of transformation, uh, where something immense is shifting, and what I, what I find, um, actually, if you look historically uh, at operas 
that have worked and sustained, they tend to be at their heart, at their core, very intimate stories with larger forces at work around them. That's why gods and goddesses and legends and myths and legends were initially so popular. Um, not only because everyone knew those stories and was familiar with them, so they, they would be open to a musical telling of them, um, but also because these are very intimate stories with large forces at work, uh, with a sense of fate or destiny or something big going on around them. And I, I'm drawn to those uh, stories as well, um, because you get the sense of a, uh, an emotional landscape and a physical landscape that is, that is controlling events and that people are struggling with. And I, I find that sort of tension is, uh, is, is necessary to build something as big as an opera. You know, you're looking for a story where, again, the emotions are so big that people have to sing about them, but they're also big enough to fill whatever opera house it is that you're writing them for. Um, and so, so those are elements that I look for. Also a variety of characters uh, and, and perspectives, and also action that will happen on stage, confrontations or something something big that that occurs on stage that sets these uh, sets these emotions going and uh, gets things boiling um, that might be a little bit too much of an explanation but uh, it, it isn't just one thing it's a combination of things right. I also look for an element of social injustice or inequity in the story that people are struggling with and I think that's something that's been tried and true through time as well uh, either class struggle or personal struggle because of how a person is born or where they're born. Right. I uh, yeah. I think of uh, one of the first works by you that, that I came to know uh, mm-hmm. uh, that you composed for the uh, Seattle-based group Music for Remembrance, which uh, mm-hmm. presents stories that spring out of the Holocaust, um, mm-hmm. your work called For a Look or a Touch. Uh, explain yeah. to our listeners uh, this this really uh, um, in, in, intriguing work. Um. Well, this woman who, who runs Music of Remembrance in Seattle, her name is Minna Miller, and uh, the, the group is dedicated to remember to remembering creative voices lost to the Holocaust. And for a long time, she'd been wanting, she wanted to explore all different aspects of the Holocaust. And for a long time, she'd been wanting to write um, a piece about the persecution of gays during the Holocaust. And she really liked my work, and it resonated with her strongly, and she wanted to approach me about it, and I was excited to explore that, because I didn't know anything about that part of the Holocaust. I didn't know there was a persecution of homosexuals, and um, and so when I went to look for uh, reference materials, or source materials, there was this big void, and I couldn't figure out wh- why couldn't I find any material about this? Why was there any poetry or stories about this? during that time, and then I realized that even after the war was over, it was still illegal to be gay in Germany and most of those countries uh, right after the war, up until 1970, uh, which is why there was none of this material, because after the war, the gay people who had been imprisoned or accused, they either went underground or they went abroad or they got married or they hid themselves somehow. And it wasn't until really the late 70s that we start seeing material appear uh, about that period and that persecution. So I realized I would need original texts. And my, my colleague, Gene Shear, who I wrote Moby Dick and Three Decembers with, he went on the hunt and he found material in the U.S. Holocaust Museum and elsewhere and in a wonderful documentary called Paragraph 175 um, with interviews with um, gay people who had been in 
imprisoned during those times and their memories of that period during the Holocaust. And it was so harrowing that we created a story that was based on the true story of two men who had been lovers uh, and who had one survived and one was murdered with his entire family in Auschwitz when he was 19. And so we invented the story of the ghost of that 19-year-old visiting the older man in Berlin towards the end of his life. And the older man had been trying to forget all of this. And the young man, of course, who's a ghost, only wants to be remembered. And they were able to share their stories together over the period of this one act op- over the course of this one act opera called For a Look or a Touch. And it turned out to be a very powerful piece that's been done in many different forms all over the world by now. I, I enlarged it to include uh, a men's chorus. And uh, so it's been done all over Germany as well as the United States. It's been recorded a couple of times, and now it's going to be the second act of a full evening opera uh, that is uh, Holocaust stories uh, that Gene and I are opening in May called um, Out of Darkness. Hmm. Um, And I know we need to talk about Three Decembers, but I also have to touch on the fact that, uh, on the other hand, uh, for as weighty uh, and and emotionally powerful as that, that work is, uh, you're also right now at work on finishing up an operatic treatment of It's a Wonderful Life. I wonder yeah. if you could just say a word about and not that that work doesn't actually contain a whole lot of darkness and emotional weight, yeah. but uh, but uh, it's not not emotional weight of the of, of, of the same kind, of course. And it's also uh, a film that is so well known by everyone. Yeah. Uh, I wonder what that feels like for you to be, in a sense, treading on such familiar ground versus something like For a Look or a Touch, where you are sharing a story with the public that most of the public has absolutely no awareness of whatsoever. I suspect that this, this other project... Uh, uh, presents a very different kind of challenge to you artistically. Well, yes, and you hit the nail on the head. I look for projects that will take me to new places and challenge me in different ways. Um, feeling scared about a project is very important to me. So an element of terror when I enter a project is, is um, actually not a bad thing, and that's something that I, uh, I actually look for. I, I seek out something that inspires me and terrifies me at the same time. Um, because if it inspires me, then I know I have an idea and there's a way to do it. If it terrifies me, it means it's going to challenge me, and I won't just be repeating myself. I'll be looking for a new way of telling it. Um, It's a Wonderful Life is daunting, like you said, because it's an iconic American film. It's a beloved story, Um, but I also feel like it's a story that could be told on the stage and operatically in a very special way that hasn't been explored. And we knew when we took it on that we weren't just going to try to put the movie onto the stage. We need to tell it in a fresh way. So people will get the story, but they'll get it in a way that works for the stage. And um, even though people have this sense, because there is such a sense of joyful redemption and celebration at the end, but you have to remember at the core of it, this man is thinking of taking his life. He's got a family and children. He's going to jump off a bridge because he thinks the world doesn't need him, that it would be better without him, that the world would be more valuable without him. And it isn't until a guardian angel, which is an element of magic, appears and and takes him by the hand and shows him how he has changed people's lives just by being on the planet and reaching out. Um, I think that's incredibly operatic and, um, uh, and worth exploring. 
through music and drama on the stage. So that that's a daunting project, but also terribly exciting. And I'm working with Gene Shear on that, and um, and it will be at Houston Grand Opera, which is one of the companies where I've written quite a number of works with my 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 buddy and my you know principal conductor Patrick Summers and our director Leonard Folia, and, and that's the team that created um, Three Decembers as well. Um, also Moby Dick, we created uh, Moby Dick, that team. Uh, so it's a, it's, a, it's a project deeply meaningful to me that I feel very connected to personally, but also that speaks to me um, creatively and really stimulates my imagination. I love, I love what we're doing. I'm very excited to share it. Hmm. We're speaking with composer Jay Hagee, and his chamber opera, Three Decembers, is being performed this weekend at the Milwaukee Florentine. It opened actually last weekend to a very, very enthusiastic reviews. Three Decembers is an interesting collaboration for you in that it involves not only your most frequent collaborator, uh, Gene Shear, but also Terrence McNally, your first collaborator. I mean, in a sense, all three of you collaborated on this work. It's a kind of a complicated uh, scenario. Explain it to our listeners. Well, and Terrence McNally, the playwright, has been key to every one of my works. Um, Dead Man Walking was his idea. The End of the Affair, my second opera, was his idea, though he didn't write the libretto. Um, uh, Three Decembers is based on a script that he wrote for a benefit. Um, Moby Dick was his idea. Great Scott, my opera that opened last year, was his libretto. So he's been involved with almost every one of my operas in some way, shape, or form. And after I'd written both Dead Man Walking and The End of the Affair, I was looking for uh, an intimate Story, just a few characters that could be done with just a cup, a few instruments, and I asked Terence if he had anything in his folder or file drawer that I might take a look at, and he said, "You know, I have this script that I wrote for a benefit. Um, that's just three characters over three different decades of their lives." And so I read it, and immediately had that shiver of music going up and down my spine, my hair standing on end, because I knew something very, very special was there. It was just a 14-page script, an original story, about a famous actress and her two adult children, and the struggles that they have over three different decades. Uh, I mean, three different, yeah, three different decades of the AIDS crisis. Um, and I had been uh, pushed by a couple of friends of mine to really explore the AIDS crisis in uh, in a theatrical way, um, in an opera, um, because it's easy. It's like music of remembrance. If you don't put these things into art and remember them somehow, they will be forgotten. And I don't think people today, especially young people, have any sense of what the 80s were like in this country during the initial years of the AIDS crisis and how terrifying that was and how it did split families apart and it did split friendships apart and people were very... It united some communities and it divided others. Um, But it was... That was at the beginning of this process with reading the script because he had written it for uh, an AIDS benefit at Carnegie Hall and the actress that played the mother was Julie Harris and the actors that played the son and daughter were Victor Garber and Cherry Jones and so very strong mm. personalities, very strong characters and it was about these three different decades of their lives um, three different Christmases um, when they either were together or further apart and uh, I was really inspired, and, and Federico von Stata really wanted to create the role of the mother, 
and it went through several different incarnations. At first, we thought it was going to be a big musical theater piece, and Stephen Schwartz, who wrote uh, Godspell and Pippin and Wicked, he was going to write the lyrics. I was writing the music. Terrence McNally was writing the book, and it suddenly got huge, and it was this cast of dozens of people, and then it all fell apart, and it was Flicka, Rodrigo Bonsada, who said, you know, I think we've gotten a little far away from what inspired us about it first, which was the intimacy and immediacy of three characters over three different periods, ten years apart. And she was right. And once we got back to that, it came very, very quickly. And I brought Gene Shear on, and he wrote the libretto, and he created a story based on Terrence's original script that really took flight. And so we have uh, this very famous stage mother, uh, stage actress, uh, who's the mother of these children, and she's not only a famous Broadway actress, but she's doing her first musical, and my coming from a musical theater background originally, I was able to draw on all of the things that I loved about musical theater, and then she has a son who's gay and whose partner is um, suffering from uh, uh, AIDS, and she has a daughter who's in a in a very unstable marriage on the other coast of the country, and they have a really hard time ever connecting, and it isn't until the very end that there's this wonderful scene of redemption and transformation, and up until then, it's about family secrets and lies and things that people have been hiding, and it it deals with um, so many things. It deals with mental illness and suicide and um, uh, unfaithful spouses and alcoholism as well as all these other things, it covers a lot of territory, big, big, big issues um, within this very intimate uh, story and family dynamic, but I'm very proud of the piece. It's very different from anything that I had written to that point, and it, it has the biggest musical theater influence in it because the mother is a musical theater performer, and she dominates the entire texture and tone of the piece. Um, and it was originally called Last Act, A-C-T-S, uh, last acts, um, because it was about the things that we leave behind and the things that we do uh, in the end. But that's a title that's also very hard to say. I had to actually spell out the second word for you. <laughs> that's not good for the title of a piece. So it became three Decembers almost immediately um, because of the three different Decembers and periods, uh, decades of their lives that they share in this piece. And um, it was a remarkable challenge doing a full evening opera just for three characters and a small orchestra of 11 instruments, but it turned into such a rich, powerful thing. And this piece has been done about 15, nearly 20 times internationally as well, and uh, very, very proud of it. And I, I know Bill Florescu has done a wonderful job over at Florentine Opera, and they've got a tremendous cast of, uh, of wonderful singing actors. And uh, it's a chance to really get intimate and personal with opera and um, I, I just, I'm, I, I'm so upset that I can't be out there to see it, but I, I, I love the piece and I'm very proud that it's being done there. I think I read someplace that it's one of the nicest problems for a composer to have when there are so many engagements in so many places that it becomes impossible for you to be yeah. everywhere where your pieces are being performed. This piece I've read has undergone some transformation. Uh, that is, you have revised it. Um, mm -hmm. Could you just say a, a quick word about the ways in which this work has been revised? Because it sounds like it was very, very well received uh, upon its very, very first uh, performance. Uh, was there anything in particular that fueled your desire to uh, to revise it? Yes. Um, there's <clears throat> anytime, <clears throat> excuse me, 
the only the only time you really hear a piece uh, of theater like the, like an opera is when it's being performed, and when the final character of any opera shows shows up, which is the audience, um, and they give you a sense of what's working and what's not. Up until then, it's very abstract in our imaginations as to how the piece is going to work or not, and we may think we know very well how the audience is going to react and might be very surprised. And as a result, you just want to do what you can to make the piece as good as it can be and to make it better. Um, and we realized after three December's premiere that we could, we could do better. We could do better. And it originally had an intermission and we realized that that was uh, taking away from uh, the intensity of the journey. So we got rid of the intermission. I wrote some interlude music and we also knew we could do better with Madeline's Broadway number for the show that she's in. Um, I had written a very bombastic, lively thing for the for the first time through, and it just didn't didn't register. You didn't get enough of a variety or a sense of who Madeline really is. And so I rewrote that entire number and created something that's very sort of Sondheim-esque and uh, much softer, with an ache in the middle of it. And it suddenly made the character much richer and much more alive. And so that, and that, those were the big changes. It was those two things: rewrite that number and write an interlude, so that we have just one 90-minute act rather than two acts. Um, and that seemed to do it for the piece, and it's had a really good life ever since. Mm-hmm. But it's always, how can we make it better? How can we make it the best it can be? Really focus on the work itself, and 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 uh, make the changes that are needed. You also. Uh are someone who obviously loves the human voice and really knows how to write for the human voice. Um, is that, for the most part, uh, instinct, or do you feel like over time you have sort of learned about that, learned how to do that better and better? Well, it was natural for me to write for the voice right from the time I was very little. Um, I went to song songwriting very quickly after I started composing and even though I'm not a singer myself, uh, I've always I've always loved to sing, <laughs> and um, <clears throat> and I think it's just it was natural for me to do, and it's something that I've learned about and, and loved from the beginning. I love singers, I love singing actors, I love uh, musicals, I love operas, I love the hybrids that are out there, um, and I love the way that the that singers can be troubadours and really uh, tell us stories in a heightened emotional way that is unlike anything else. Um, and so over time, as I've worked with singers through the years, first as, a, as an accompanist and a collaborator and then writing songs and uh, learning about the opera, um, I think, I hope I've gotten better at it, but it came very naturally to me uh, right from the beginning. And I've learned about it a lot over the years and uh, expanded that technique so that um, it is really what I do is write for write for the voice, almost everything that I write involves a voice or a, or a bunch of voices or a choir. Um, it's, it's what I have to offer to the world that I think is special and certainly that resonates most strongly with me. Here's the last question. You have said that uh, it baffles you that uh, when we talk about operas that uh, we're always talking about Mozart's The Magic Flute or Verdi's Aida and uh, we so seldom uh, make mention of, and and in some cases seem scarcely to be even aware that there was a librettist responsible for crafting the libretto. And 
and uh, this is something that is that, that obviously you deeply appreciate. That is the good work of a librettist to create a good libretto. And I must say that uh, so often when I go to a, a new opera, what ends up being the letdown is the libretto, and that uh, it is a difficult craft, a, a difficult challenge to to create a libretto, uh, which is a worthy vehicle for for wonderful music. Uh, you must count yourself very fortunate to uh, to have worked with such fine librettists in your career, and you're obviously very careful to give them the credit that is due them. Um, what do aspiring librettists out there need to think about, or composers who are, are offered opportunities to create new operas and need to find a librettist or find a libretto? Uh, what is most important uh, for that key uh, component? And it is key. I thank you for acknowledging that. Um, it is. It is a very, very hard. Um, it is a very hard thing to be a librettist. First of all, um, you are going to be left off the program sometimes, and unjustly so. Um, and so if, if you have this sense of wanting to be in control, which is what a lot of um, writers want, is to, you know, I mean, a lot of playwrights, they're in control. They're first and foremost in charge. And with an opera, ultimately what makes it an opera is the music, and the composer has to be the primary dramatist, in a sense. But to do that, we need someone who works with us and gives us the structure and the scaffolding and the language and the poetic soul of the piece from the start so that we have something to work with and explore. Um, a librettist isn't just a playwright. They are definitely not just a poet or a, or a novelist, definitely not a novelist, because so much of an opera is about going beyond what the words say. And so if it's someone who's entirely about what the words have to say, they're not going to make a great librettist. Um, it has to be someone who sees beyond that and who's also willing to cut language because the music can tell the story there. Um, or a stage action could tell the story much better than describing it with words. Um, the fault of a lot of new librettos is that they're overly wordy. Um, and, and what we want is to go away with an em uh, emotional experience based on a musical impact that is, that is uh, where the music is illuminating those words, but it's not so dependent on those words that if you don't understand the language, you're lost. The great thing about great operas is you go to a great Russian or Czech or Italian or German or French opera, if you don't understand the language, you'll still understand emotionally what's going on. And that's because the words provided a scaffolding and a, and a structure um, and a dramatic flow so that the music could lift off and tell us a story on its own terms. So trying to find a collaborator that understands all of that and is willing to be highly flexible and willing to change their work. I need someone, when I work, who is willing to cut, rewrite, just as I'm willing to cut, rewrite, because the work demands it. Um, and people always say, well, when is the libretto done? And the libretto's done whenever the score is finally done. <laughs> and until then, it is a work in progress. So opening night, we have both finished our work to that point, but then, we again, that final character shows up, the audience, and they give us a reaction, and maybe there's more rewriting that we need to do, and both of us have to be willing to do that work. So uh, it's a very special person who, become, who wants to write a libretto for an opera, and uh, it's highly collaborative, and they have to be willing to take on ideas that might not be their own, 
Um, they have to work with me as as uh, as the music starts to lift off and tell the story. We both have to be willing to look at characters anew, and because you'll learn something about a character from their music that you didn't know before when it was just the words. So um, it, it's it's kind of hard to describe, but it's it's a very special relationship, and I have to have a great personal working relationship with with a writer too, so that we're not apologizing to each other. You know, you know, I love your work and I love you, but this is insane. Now, can we look at this again? No, it has to be. I don't like this. I do like this. Can we find a better way to do this um, so that we can really just focus on on the work? Hmm. Well, you and librettist Gene Shear have uh, certainly made magic again and again. It's it's not magic exactly. Actually, I mean it's the result of hard work and sensitive collaboration and. The results speak for themselves. And your your chamber opera, Three Decembers, uh, being performed at the Milwaukee Florentine. Uh, composer Jake Hagee, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for actually beautifully explaining so much of what you do. Much of it's not easy to explain, but uh, you're such an articulate uh, spokesperson for all that you do. And, uh, and thank you for your contribution to uh, our musical landscape and for joining me today on The Morning Show. Great pleasure to be with you, Craig. Thank you so much. Glad this worked out. I have to share with you a real quick thing from a former student of mine uh, when she heard that I was going to interview you today. She said, tell Mr. Hagee that a lowly college undergrad thanks him for writing a song that felt like velvet for my voice and still fits me better than any standard art song or aria ever has. As a singer, finding songs like that feel like I've won the biggest lottery in the world. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> she's wow. talking about, so nice uh, she's talking about I Shall Not Live in Vain, which I'm sure oh, a lot of singers sure. probably say that. <laughs> All right. Well, thank <laughs> you again. Uh, very, very best wishes okay. to you. Thank you, Greg.